Hello and welcome to the Remembered Podcast, part of our 2018 Armistice Project, There But Not There. Remembering those who fell in the First World War through silhouette and Tommy installations and raising funds in line with our three aims to commemorate, to educate, to heal. Over the last few months, we've been joined by various individuals, organisations and charities who have been commemorating the centenary of the First World War in different ways. As we move towards the end of our campaign, we hope we've inspired some of you to research your own stories and involve your own communities in remembering those who died. As always, you'll be able to find links to everything we talk about in the notes below, and you can also find out more on our website, therebutnotthere.org.uk. You can follow us at Remembered2018 on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, and if you'd like to get in touch more directly, you can email myself, Nikki and Fred at supporters at tbnt.org.uk. Today, we're speaking with Haiyan Barber from Forgotten Heroes, which is a project focusing on the role of Muslims in the First World War. Hello, Haiyan. Thank you for coming in. Hello, thank you for having me. Not at all. Um, I think, first of all, it would be useful for us to hear a little bit more about the Muslim contribution to place it in some context uh, in the war as a whole. Sure. So, um, the research that we have uncovered over the last seven and a bit years is that um, two and a half million or more than two and a half million Muslim soldiers and labourers from around the world fought for the Allies in the First World War. We actually believe that this figure is nearer to or greater than four million, um, but for the moment we've found uh, almost a million original documents showing us that the figures are actually two and a half million. Wow. So where, when you say from around the world, which countries were they largely coming from? Uh, they came from the Middle East, North Africa, uh, you know, the Maghreb, the Levant, the Arabian Peninsula, but also China, Russia, um, and, and, and of course we know about the Muslims and South Asians from the Indian, British Indian Army. So what happened seven years ago? How did uh, the Forgotten Heroes project come about? And can you, can you tell us a bit more about the project itself? Sure. So uh, the, the foundation is called the Forgotten Heroes 1419 Foundation. The chairman and founder of the foundation, uh, Luke Ferrier, came across his grandfather's journals. Uh, his grandfather was a professional soldier in Flanders Fields. In his journals, he referred to and admired greatly the many Muslim soldiers he came across uh, from the Middle East and North Africa. Um, and this struck uh, Luke with uh, quite some curiosity um, because, of course, we'd never learned anything about so many Muslims being involved in the First World War. So he started to ask questions. He started to ask history teachers, historians, um, archive librarians. Uh, and in the beginning, a lot of historians and history teachers said to him, no, it can't be true, because if it was true, we'd know about it. But then, of course, Luke was insulted by the idea that his, great, his grandfather must be lying. Uh, so he was digging uh, more and more, and, and, and seven years later, we have uncovered uh, nearly a million original documents in languages such as Arabic, Hebrew, Farsi, and various dialects in between. Um, in uh, almost 19 different countries, uh, in across maybe 40 different locations, so diplomatic archives, military archives, and some personal collections. How do you, I mean, a million documents, that's, that's huge. How do, you, how do you go about finding these? How did you come across them? Well, actually, we were the first organisation simply to just ask for Arabic, Hebrew and Farsi language archives, among other languages. Um, and so, of course, a lot of the librarians would say to our researchers, yes, actually, we do have those, but they've not been opened 
and we don't know what's in them. So we were the first to go through them. Um, we've still got to digitise and translate a lot of them, which is, is part of the, the project. Um, but we've also um, got to index them. Uh, so um, we've got a rough idea of, of what things are and where they are, but we really need to go into the nitty gritty and, and examine them and explore them in greater detail. Have you got a big team that's working on that? Where, who, who's doing your translation and everything like that? Um, at the moment, very little is, has been done. Uh, we tend to do translations uh, as we raise money and, and we, we're very selective at the moment uh, due to the size and, and, and expense of it all. Our team is probably about 130 people all around the world. That's our management team uh, and then, of course, 120 or so researchers um, who we contract and work with. They're PhD researchers, PhD students, uh, historians, etc. So it's been going seven years, you've got a huge amount of research still to do, obviously. Have you got any gems you've uncovered in the last few years that you would particularly like to boast about or yeah, sure. people with? Or? There are so many examples that we found uh, that are quite positive and heartwarming that I think people today, uh, if they learn, they would probably reflect on how Europe uh, treats Muslims today uh, compared to how Muslims received, how Europe received Muslims in the First World War. So, for example, there was, uh, in 1914 on the battlefield, there was an incident where three Moroccan uh, Muslim soldiers were looking after a captured and uh, prisoner of war, a German soldier. And they were found by Belgian and French officers um, and Canadian officers uh, caring for this injured German soldier, giving him water and food. So the officers asked the Moroccan soldiers, why on earth are you doing this? And they explained that actually, given the example of our prophet um, in Islam, in the Quran and in Hadith, the, the Testaments, uh, they're instructed to care for captured prisoners of war. Anyone that is in their care, they need to care for them, feed them, uh, so they're not begging for their sustenance. And this, the report state that the officers found this jaw-dropping. And for me, this is remarkable because this was how Muslim soldiers behaved and engaged with rules of law, um, rules of engagement and rules of war, sorry, uh, before the Geneva Conventions. And in doing so, they were outwardly expressing their faith. And this was quite remarkable. Similarly, uh, Muslim soldiers have been seen to be very selfless. There was a time when food rations were quite low and soldiers were instructed uh, not to give their food out to anybody else, even civilians. This didn't stop Muslim soldiers giving their food to uh, young local uh, women and girls, uh, children who were living in the villages who clearly needed food during times of famine. There's a picture on your website, I think, of that happening. That's correct, yeah. It's the, the, the soldier, Indian soldier that's on the horse. Yeah, and he's handing down his rations, yeah. That's correct, yeah. But also, we found lots of stories of um, brotherhood and camaraderie that I think also gives us lessons uh, for today. So, for example, um, we know that um, there were Muslim, Jewish and, Sikh, uh, and Christian and Sikh uh, soldiers, etc. All of different backgrounds who fought on the front line. At the time, they discovered that when they were in hospital, um, some of the senior decision makers were discussing how and when they will separate them in, uh, when they die in the cemeteries. Where will they build the Muslim burial plot and the Jewish and the Christian, etc. 
when those soldiers learned this on their deathbeds, uh, they protested. They said, no, absolutely not. We don't want to be buried separately. We want to be buried. I want to be buried with my Christian and Jewish brother in arms who I fought with alongside in the trenches and on the battlefield. I don't want to be separated from them. So that's why in France, in a lot of the cemeteries, you see, it's not uncommon to see a, uh, a Christian gravestone next to a Jewish one, next to a Muslim one. And it's not just in one or two places, it's, it's wherever you find them together. They are not in separate blocks uh, for the most part. So would there have been, I know, you know, I know that in British regiments and things like that, they would have a padre out there with them. Would there be the equivalent imam or something like that sent out with Muslim troops set front? Yes, there were. So, uh, and I'm glad that you raised that point actually, because a lot of there was such respect amongst uh, the soldiers for their difference in belief and, and, and background that their chaplains and padres, imams, rabbis, or whoever else had the, the responsibility of chaplain for their units on the battlefield. They specifically asked their superior officers if they could either carry the different uh, religious texts with them or, or learn how to recite things in Hebrew, Arabic, English, etc. Um, so they Latin. could do the last rites. So they could perform the last rites for dying soldiers who couldn't do it themselves. Um, and similarly, uh, sometime in 1916, uh, the French Minister of War, Alexandre Milleran, sent out a directive to all French soldiers instructing them that uh, how to read the Shahada, which is um, a profession of faith for Muslims, which has to be read out or recited by someone who's dying, as their, their sort of last words. They would recite it if they were dying or in fear. But of course, if there were some soldiers who couldn't because of their condition, so uh, others would have to recite it for them. But of course, there weren't always Muslim soldiers around or there weren't always a, a Muslim chaplain available. So, of course, soldiers would prefer to find a Muslim to do this for them, but where they couldn't, they realised that there was a need to address this. So, Alexander Milleran sent an order telling French soldiers that when a Muslim soldier dies, recite the Shahada, this is what it is, uh, and explained why it's done, and explained how and why Muslim soldiers are buried. Well, of your information seems to be coming from sort of French archives and things like that. Is that due to Luke being Belgian, the founder of your project, or is that just because there was better integration amongst the French troops, or the records are better kept from Muslim soldiers? Uh, no, I mean, there's no particular um, set of archives or records that are easier to get. Um, but I guess, I guess being British and Luke being French, uh, Belgian does make it easy because in a sense, we are people who just simply want to tell a story. We have no political motive. Uh, we have no need to make this a, a negative story. We just want to bring out the facts of the First World War. So I think that that certainly helped Luke in accessing all the various archives. Um, but equally, we've also got access to German and Dutch archives. Um, another example, actually, is, is a front page of a Dutch newspaper. We actually own this Dutch newspaper from 1916. And on the front page, it says, Give, uh, again, the uh, Ministry of War at the time sent out a, a, a direct order, which it prints on the front cover of this magazine, uh, of this newspaper. And in that, they say, while we're handing out rations of alcohol for morale, etc., please be aware that there are people amongst you Muslims who don't drink alcohol, so don't consume it in front of them. And you know, 
be sensitive to their cultural and religious uh, traditions. And you think, if you were to think about that today, you could think of quite right-wing tabloid newspapers now saying things like Muslims want to take away our boobs or Muslims <laughs> want special uh, privileges again. So you can, you can see the difference in how people were, were treated and respected and received from different backgrounds in the First World War. And we just think that that's such a wonderful story to tell. Never mind the facts and the figures of how many people served, how many people died in the locations they were in, but actually the focus of our project is to focus on the human experience of people from all different backgrounds who have come together at wartime, accommodated each other, respected each other, made friends, and, 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 and we think that that's a tremendous lesson today, especially when we've got rising hate crime, rising xenophobia. Europe seems to be uh, lurching to the right, and unfortunately today we see a lot of uh, hatred against Muslims. And we think that by highlighting the contribution of Muslims in the First World War, as well as their human experience and interaction with people of other faith and backgrounds, we can start to challenge and break down the barriers uh, that people may think that they have with uh, their fellow human beings. Well, it gives a shared history, doesn't it? It's just, it's, it, it highlights the fact that our history is, as Britons actually extends a lot further afield than we might think. Absolutely. And I think if we can teach young people today that we all have a shared history, we all have an ownership and a stake in the history and the security of Europe, whether it's through our families or our ancestors or our communities, then I think that naturally that will also prime young people against uh, othering and xenophobia. I think if uh, a young child learns that actually people of all backgrounds gone along a hundred years ago and it's not a new thing, if they are then told that Muslims, Christians, Sikhs, Jews, Hindus, etc. can't get along, they'll say, no, it's nonsense, I know that it, it happened and we all came together then, there's no reason why we can't come together now. I think that people tend to feel that, you know, a hundred years ago there was a lot more racism, that people weren't sensitive to other religions because they didn't know any better, for want of a better phrase. Um, but from what you're saying is that's that's clearly very, very untrue. Would you say that was the general experience of Muslims? Like, was there prejudice? I mean, there, we, I mean, there, there are other historians and writers who have written about racism or a difference in treatment by some of the powers towards the colonial troops. And that was probably based on um, the idea that, obviously, national troops must have uh, more were more respected than say colonial troops because they may have been secondary but we haven't we ourselves haven't found any examples of racism or prejudice but i think that would be different from saying that people may have uh, been weary about engaging with each other because they didn't know each other's backgrounds however what we found is that they didn't stop people from learning about each other but they didn't stop people from becoming friends um, you could say that the way that Muslims, Sikhs, and, uh, and Jews, and Christians, etc., integrated and, and, and shared each other's uh, cultural activities was actually interfaith in practice before the term interfaith began. If we tried to apply modern-day ideas of what racism is to then, I don't think it would have existed. I think people would have been intrigued in a pleasant way and in a good way to find out more about somebody who's different. Um, you know, we've, we've seen images of uh, Muslim soldiers in northern France who were gathering for Friday prayers. And for the first time, 
a lot of uh, nurses are seeing this, and they line up outside in the field observing and seeing these Muslim soldiers uh, praying in unison. But also, we also see how um, nurses and young children and locals, uh, people from the villages in Belgium and France, you know, they want to take photographs with these soldiers because they realise that these soldiers are different, they've never seen them before, so they're intrigued. But also, they've got huge respect for them because they have come to Europe to fight in their war, and it's nothing to do with them. So I think the conditions were right for people to come together and, and introduce each other and, and meet each other and learn from each other. Um, but we haven't found any examples of racism. I imagine there's also possibility that what we would consider everyday racism was not considered so in, the, in those days, and so it was a lot more firmly entrenched and perhaps less noteworthy. So it's these it's these pieces of information where people are amazed by the kindness of these Muslim soldiers that they feel that that is noteworthy to include. Yeah. Also, there you could say that there was probably examples of how maybe racial or cultural stereotypes might have been used in propaganda, but I guess it was spun positively. So, for example, we've got a poster or, or a scan, a digital scan of a poster uh, that the British and the French used, and it shows um, Algerian or Moroccan Muslim soldiers on horseback, and they look quite scary and quite fierce. Now, you might think that the people who put that together are promoting the idea that all oh, these people must be animals and savages, they must be scary. But actually they use that in a positive light of propaganda because they wanted to scare the Germans, saying we've got these guys on our side. So um, I guess there may have been, it may have been played on, but we haven't found any direct racism. I mean, one of the negative examples of, of what we found when it came to the difference in treatment of colonial troops and national troops is, it was actually by the Germans. Um, the first chemical weapons attack uh, performed by the Germans was actually against a, uh, a regiment of, of Algerian, Moroccan and Tunisian soldiers uh, because the Germans believed that the French, Canadian and the British officers wouldn't care about them so much. So, but it's also a tragic story and one that would make great uh, screenplay. Um, so these, these um, Middle Eastern soldiers are in a trench the Germans have then decided they're going to attack them with mustard gas, thinking that the colonial powers won't care about them. Uh, and instead what happens was, as they are then being uh, attacked with mustard gas, uh, the Muslim soldiers realise that the French and Canadian officers and soldiers are charging towards the, the trenches, not knowing that they're, they're, they're charging to their deaths. So the Muslim soldiers shoot over their heads as a warning, back at their own soldiers, friendly fire, but over their heads. The French and Canadian soldiers think they're attacking us and they start firing back, but actually they were saving them. Um, but this was a situation that was caused by the Germans in the, in the way that they did it. But again, that's, that actually shows a positive, there's a positive in that story, that actually Muslim soldiers were protecting the front line um, in, in the way that they behaved and reacted. So, where we first became aware of what you guys are doing, um, and I think it's probably your most popular project that you've put out, is, um, is this incredible book called The Unknown Fallen, uh, which I will let you describe, uh, and uh, we'll put a link to it on our, in our show notes because it's just incredible. But tell us about the book. 
It's a beautiful book, yes. Thank you so much. Uh, So Luke authored this wonderful book called The Unknown Fallen. Um, It's the first volume of what we hope will be many. And it's a small collection of just some of the last seven years of research. Um, It's a collection of archive, field records. It's a selection of images. They're put together in a coffee table book, much like artwork. But the purpose of the book is to challenge what you think you know about the First World War. So you'll see quotes that will be from philosophers next to soldiers, uh, Muslim soldiers, Christian soldiers, Jewish soldiers, and they're praying together. Um, um, And at first it may not make sense to you, uh, to the reader, but we hope that the the narratives and the themes that are, that are in the book will challenge what people think that they know about the First World War and make them reflect on uh, humanity, on peace, on the differences between people and the similarities between people. Um, so it's, it's a very, very unusual book uh, in the sense that it's unique. Um, it's not something that's got tons of text in it, but equally it's not a coffee table book either. We, we've kind of, I think, probably created something of our own uh, genre in it, but um, I'd love to hear what you guys think about it. And it's all tied together through these incredible sketches that you have throughout the book of um, Muslim soldiers from different parts of the world. Yes, so, um, and, and I think that that's a great way of showing people uh, the true diversity in the First World War effort. I mean, I think that this would make a fantastic resource for schools, don't you think? I totally agree. It's something that we would like to see schools buy. Um, we have, uh, with the Historical Association, produced in their latest journal um, example classroom exercises and classroom resources and a lesson plan um, that they can create or, or, or use as it is from the book and use the book as a, as a, as a resource. Um, because the book has been put together in a way that it's easy for all ages to read. Um, they can either absorb the images and the artwork, or they can examine some of the facts and figures that they will find throughout the book. And the personal stories, of course, yeah. they're included in there as well. Absolutely. And they'll see that actually, um, which is part of our core narrative, the idea that it didn't matter that people were from different backgrounds. Um, what really mattered uh, for soldiers in the First World War is is, is what they shared together, and that was the things that they feared. They missed their parents, they missed being home, they missed their partners or children. Um, uh, and the biggest fear that they all had in common um, was the order fixed by nets. That's the same fear that every soldier or labourer had that was working or, or, or fighting in the trenches. Um, and that was a universal thing. And there are many universal experiences that soldiers, regardless of their differences, had. So, as well as the book, you run tours, I believe, into France. That's correct. So, we've also set up um, um, customised tours with a leading uh, battlefield tours organiser called Anglia Tours. Um, so, it's open for adults and school groups uh, and anybody, really, who wants to see the uh, cemeteries and battlefield sites in the First World War uh, that concern the Muslim soldiers, the Chinese Labour Corps, the Egyptian Labour Corps. But we also visit the South African War Memorial. Um, we do so because 
Um, it allows people who attend the tour to reflect on the idea that, uh, first, about the diversity in the First World War, but also um, the tour guides talk about how the South African War Memorial was a very white memorial once, and how later it changed to include the names of black South Africans who fought in the First World War. And so it, it, it brings to, to your mind the idea that actually remembrance is evolving and remembrance is changing. And it's something that we're trying to engage with and, and, and affect as well. What are your plans for the project going forward? So you've produced this beautiful book. Do you have more plans for books? Um, what other ways are you going to present the information that you've, you've discovered? Like you say, you've got like a million documents. What are you, what are you going to do with all of that? Well, in an ideal world, if we had all the money tomorrow, we would digitise everything. Uh, we'd make a physical archive that, that was accessible to the whole public. Um, um, we would make also a digital archive that we'd make accessible through an app or, or online. Um, <clears throat> we'd produce uh, more books. We'd produce more literature. We'd just supply historians with all of the facts and figures and information so that they can write more about this topic. Uh, we would like um, religious and state schools and private schools to take part more in um, understanding, expanding how they teach World War I history at school, so it's more inclusive. Um, and we would, of course, also uh, like to travel the world with a travelling exhibition of some of the most intriguing uh, finds that we have. Um, you know, like a 3D uh, interactive traveling exhibition so that would be fantastic uh, and of course more books uh, but also um, talking of an exhibition we actually have an exhibition that's taking place right now um, it's called the singularity of peace again it's designed to make people who visit uh, the exhibition think about the themes of peace humanity uh, shared experiences um, through the examples of the soldiers in the first world war um, and that's taking place at the Waterfront building in uh, Manborough Wharf in Hammersmith until the 18th of November. Um, so, I mean, we're just trying to do what we can with the limited resources we have at the moment. Um, and of course, raise money, raise awareness so that we continue uh, taking this strength to strength. So how can people help support that work? Um, well, sometimes it's as easy as, um, for those who can, if they can donate, we only take uh, public donations. Um, if people would share our things, if people would maybe write to their schools, their history teachers, their local uh, politicians, asking them to engage with us or to buy the book from us. Uh, because all the profits that we make from anything that we sell, we uh, divert back into the foundation so that we can continue the charitable labours uh, moving forward. How's it been received with those kind of, as you say, historians, politicians, things like that? Do you find much uptake? Are they receptive to it? No, no, most people are, actually. I think um, a lot of um, people um, are probably unsure how to react at first because it's such a substantial difference uh, when we think about what we think we know about or thought we knew about Muslims in the First World War. The figures that are, are, that are quoted are often the 400,000 who served in the British Indian Army. Yeah, so that's the only figure I was aware of. Yeah. yeah. I think people probably think at first that we may be exaggerating or maybe trying to make political points by saying actually this many Muslims served and um, etc. 
Um, so it's no surprise that people in the beginning are unsure, maybe, uh, whether they should engage with us straight away. But, but having said that, there have been a lot of historians, a lot of politicians, um, a lot of community organisations that have realised that actually this is quite a substantial find. And they're engaging with us in a positive way. There's still a long way to go um, because, of course, what we've found, it challenges convention. Uh, it challenges what we know about the First World War. It challenges how we should remember the First World War um, and, uh, and how we should engage with all of the wider underrepresented communities in remembrance. Uh, and I think if people remember that we've all had some connection to the great conflicts of modern time, then I think that that would, I hope, humble a lot of people. Uh, and bring people to this idea that actually there's more that we share in common than there is that we have, that, is, that makes us different. Um, and, I, and I think that there are so many lessons that can be learned from conflict, and I think that what hopefully what we will achieve is a unique uh, perspective on those lessons. Hi, thank you so much for coming in to speak to us, and thank good luck with uh, the exhibition and with the book and with your education drive, and hopefully we'll speak to you again another time to see where you're at in a, in a year or so. Thank you. Next week, we'll be speaking with our beneficiary, Help for Heroes, about the work they do and showing how they'll be putting to use the funds raised this year. At the end of today's podcast, we're going to play a new piece of music composed by Benjamin Holloway in support of the There But Not There project. It's been recorded by the City of Prague Philharmonic Orchestra under the baton of acclaimed Welsh conductor Owen Arwell Hughes, and crucially, all proceeds from the download sales of this track will go to our campaign and to our beneficiary charities. So if you like it, follow the link in our show notes and you can buy it on iTunes to support the project further. Thank you again so much for listening. And don't forget, you can visit our website to sign up for our monthly newsletter and follow us at Remembered2018 on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Please leave us a review and do share the podcast with your friends and followers. And we'll see you next week.